0: Okay, let's get started.
1: Okay, so um, as I mentioned last time I was here, we're sort of taking a step backwards and sideways for the next couple of weeks and uh, picking up a couple of issues that were also happening in our time period before we get to the big final climax um, at the end of the Christology story. So, most of what I've been talking to you about um, this, most of what I will have talked to you about in this class, will fall into one of two categories. It will fall into either a question about the nature of the Trinity, or a question about the nature of Christ. Uh, These are the two fundamental issues with which Christianity struggled in the first five centuries. The first one, the, the Trinity question, It's really concerning, you know, what's God like? Because ultimately, um, when we began to talk about God, Christians, we feel the first word has to be that he is a triune God, right? And so it's really the basic question of what kind of God do we serve? Um, And then the questions about Christ are questions, on the one hand, about what's God like, because the claim is going to be inherited that Christ is fully God. But on the other hand, there are going to be claims about how are we saved? How do, what, what action, what initiative does God take on our behalf? Um, but there are uh, other questions than just those and other questions that come out of those, and, and such is, is the debate that we have today. Um, and to, to set up this debate, um, I think it's important to make a distinction. Um, today we're going to talk about Pelagius and St. Augustine. Um, and the, the Pelagian debate is over the role of the human will in salvation. Okay. This debate will present difficulties of a type we have not faced before because it will push the boundaries of what is considered dogma and what is considered doctrine. In order to understand this, we must distinguish these two terms. And this distinction I'm going to make is good for all of church history, from, right from the very beginning all the way through yesterday. or Tomorrow. Tomorrow, I don't know. So, um, very important distinction to keep in mind. Um, you've heard Preston talk about this under different under different vocabulary, but this is the traditional vocabulary for it. Doctrine is a teaching. It's just some teaching about something. It okay? um, can be right, it can be wrong. If it's good, it's orthodox. If it's bad, it's heterodox or possibly heresy. Okay? But dogma are those doctrines that are so central that unless one believes in them, one cannot be a Christian. Okay, So, several things to be noted. One, all dogmas are doctrines. But not all doctrines are dogmas. Okay? Simple Logic 101 here. Christians may disagree about various doctrines without breaking fellowship or the need for discipline. Christians may not disagree about dogmas. To not believe in something that is a dogma is to be a heretic. A heretic is not a Christian. A heretic is someone who is, under the name of Christianity, teaching something that is contrary to the religion. Okay, so if you're you're seeing people out there teaching crazy stuff and you wonder, why do they even bother calling themselves Christians? Why don't they just call themselves something else and stop confusing everybody as to what Christians believe? Wouldn't that be better for everyone? Clearly, you don't want to believe in Christianity anyway, so quit messing it up for us, right? Well, that's the... That's the the joy of heresy, is that they do want to be called Christians because they want to mislead you into thinking, you know, maybe not consciously on their part, but somewhere, some intelligence wants to mislead you into believing this thing. And so if they can make you think, no, this is really what Christianity is about, it's easier to make you think Christianity means something other than what it is than it is to make you change religions. So they'll keep the name. But what the church says is, in fact, that's not Christian. When the church defines something to be heresy, the church is saying, the borders of Christianity stop somewhere short of where this idea starts. Okay, So, that happens about dogmas, not doctrines. So the original meaning of Catholic was universal. That is, it was what all Christians everywhere have always believed. As such, it was originally referred only to dogmatic propositions. It was meant to express unity, and as such, it allowed for doctrinal but not dogmatic variation. Thus, it was inclusive and exclusive at the same time. So, for example, um, how many people believe we'll be able to fly in heaven? Anyone? Molly? Mark? Okay. That's yep, right. All right. Good. Good. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking probably not. But this is something that we can disagree about, and it's okay. Right? It's not a dogma. If you, if, if you think that people are going to be able to fly in heaven, you can still be a Christian. Right? Or if you think that people aren't going to be able to fly in heaven, you can still be a Christian. You guys don't need to go find another church. Molly, you're good. Stay. We love you. Right?
2: <laughs>
1: Everything's going to be okay. Now, how many people think that Jesus wasn't God? How many people think that Jesus was not God? Those of you who think so, we need to talk. <laughs> okay? You, you don't have to leave. But you need to understand where you are relative to us, because uh, by our terms, you haven't yet arrived on the journey. You haven't come into the fullness of faith yet. You don't, you haven't yet become a Christian, right? Because that's not something we can negotiate on. So when we come to the table of any religious dialogue, <coughs> if, the, if, the, if the Muslims say to us, hey, you know, we have a lot of stuff in common. If you guys could just tone down the Jesus stuff, then we should be able to get along really well we have to say, well, we're sorry, we can't do that. That's our whole message. You know? if, you, if you don't like people flying in heaven, that's cool. We can, we can turn that down. You know? We'll keep that to ourselves, or you know, we'll even try not to think that. But, but if you've got a problem with the Jesus stuff, then we've got a deeper problem. Right? Doctrine versus dogma. Well, <clears throat> the problem with Pelagianism is that the original issues were original sin and a doctrine of grace. Which at this time in church history were doctrines and not dogmas. Thus, even Augustine, the great, great, great opponent of Pelagianism, agreed that those who disagree with this doctrine should be called fools, not heretics, for there is no dogma. Okay. So the original idea here is, okay, so you think that, you think that our salvation has a lot more to do with our works than I do wrong, it's foolish, but it doesn't make you not a Christian, because you still think that it isn't possible apart from Christ. So, okay. Now, dogma at this time was determined by the content of the creeds. If something was in the creed, it was dogma. If it wasn't, it wasn't. Okay? As we so see, a dogmatic issue does eventually come into play here. Nevertheless, it will be very important to separate what belongs to dogma and what belongs to doctrine here. Not least of which, because there's still great division among the churches <laughs> on this very point, point. <clears throat> and it'll be good. It'll be important for us to notice when we can, when we can disagree with them, and when we need to be insistent. Yes, Emily. Um, from your earlier
0: paragraph, oh yeah, the fourth bullet point: originally, Catholic and universal, and how that would be. I mean, at this time, was like, like we a group of people in one local like that we are a Catholic church?
1: All everyone would say that they were Catholic Christians. They're Catholic was opposed to Orthodox. Um, so you'll you'll even catch Augustine saying um, Catholics believe this, by which he means everyone who's not an Arian or a Manichaeist or a Donatist or a Pelagian. Okay. Right. And so in the, in the East and the West, the word would have been used. Other questions before we dive into Pelagius? Yeah. Well,
0: I'm not sure how to express this, but we, we have the Bible, which is written of the well, well, New Testament letters, like within a hundred years of Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems to have taken, what you're saying, 500 years for this to be both corrupted and then straightened out and all that. And yet it all really reflects back on the original writings. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure how to phrase it, <coughs> but I'm uh,
1: just a little surprised that it got that far off base that it would take all these creeds and get everything back together you know. Well,
0: um, I just They believe what we believe now, right?
1: Right, that's right. Um, although they didn't necessarily, could, they couldn't necessarily put it in the words for you. I mean, if you walked up to, let's take like an extreme example. If you walked up to the Apostle, um, James, and you said, all right, James, so Jesus was God, right? And James would be like, totally. And you're like, but God is still in heaven, right? Yeah, man. Okay, um... How could, how could God be in heaven and Jesus be God? He says, well, there's Jesus and there's the Father. So Jesus and the Father are both God. Yep. How does that work? I don't know. So does it, do you think you might be wrong? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So they had more of a blind faith. Not so much blind, just pre-reflective, right? They had, they, they I, I, I believe they really believed the same things we did, but they hadn't thought through the systematic implications of all those things yet. So what we've been seeing here is folks trying to put together all the various claims of scripture, of the original apostles, right, and saying, well, actually, it seems like, you know, James said that Jesus was God, but James also said that Jesus prayed to God, so it seems like we've got an issue here. So maybe the way I can understand that is that, you know, at one time he seemed to be the Father, and at another time he seemed to be Jesus, right? That seems to make sense to me. And before anyone has told you anything else that might seem to make sense, so other people you tell other people, and they're like, huh, I can see that, okay. That, okay, that sounds good. And then people think about it, and they say, eh, that's not going to give us the best account of what we have in Scripture. In Scripture, it really seems like there are two different individuals who are both God. So someone else comes along and says, okay, great, so there's two gods. And he says, well, uh, that's not what it seems like. I, I don't think that's what James was meaning either, right? So there's this process of trying to clarify and make more specific what we meant by our prayers, what the Scriptures meant all along. And it's significant that folks on both sides are bringing Scriptures to play on this, right? I mean, the the Reformation cry of Sola Scriptura, you say, look, we could avoid all this if we just stayed with the language of Scripture and didn't try to use any other language or reasoning or anything. As soon as you start reasoning through it, you're importing human stuff into the divine, right? The problem is that the Scriptures are not 100% clear. The Scriptures don't say... Jesus is God, and the Father is God, and you are to understand this in the word Trinity. And what that means is that there are three persons, but one God. And the Greek word for persons we're going to use in the New Testament is going to be this. No. Okay? So, on, on, the, one, on the one hand, you have, to, you have to be very subtle about how you're doing things, and that's why we have the Spirit to lead us into all truth. That's why we can't just look at the Scriptures. We also have to understand how faithful men and women have prayerfully considered these things and how the Spirit has spoken through them. And it's not straightforward. You're not going to look in church history and, and say, oh, there's the Spirit right there. It's all, that settles everything without any possible doubts now. There are possible doubts. But at the same time, there's a, there's, a clear, there's a clear tradition of interpretation that's emerging as well, that is paralleled, what's happening in the theology is paralleled by what's happening in the liturgy, right? How they're <coughs> praying. And a lot of those prayers are handed down from earlier generations and can trace their roots back to the apostles. So, it's not an exact science, but at the same time, we believe in providence. Not just Presbyterians, the whole church believes in providence. We believe that God hasn't abandoned the church through history. That the Spirit has been teaching and leading us into all truth. And that we can discern something of that process in, in the histories in front of us. So, that's what we're about. Uh, but today's, today's, today's journey will be sticky. It will be one of those that is not as clear-cut as you'd like it to be. Okay. Pelagius. Pelagius, like many early Christians, was concerned about the fatalism of culture around him. Both classical mythology, Greek and Roman, and stoic philosophy, very popular among Roman nobility, emphasized the strong hand of fate in human affairs. Pelagius felt that Christianity needed to distance itself from this, that it would never be able to proclaim its moral message, without a strong emphasis on the human will. This leads him and his followers to the following positions. Humanity is marked by the gift of unconditional free will. Whatever we do is of our own choosing, and therefore we are rightly held accountable for our actions. Because of this, he denies that the human will has a propensity for sin. It is neutral with respect to good and evil. Now, this amounts to a denial of at least one aspect of the doctrine of original sin, because it is the damage done to our nature by Adam's sin that accounts to our propensity for evil. So already, he's, he's required to have to say that Adam didn't damage our wills. You know, we aren't all, if you say good and evil before us, and say go, we've basically got a 50% chance of choosing either one, is what Pelagius is saying. But the church doctrine already by this point was that we've got like a... 70% chance or an 85% chance of choosing the wrong one, right? And if we choose the if we choose the right one, it's probably going to be sheer luck more than anything else, because our hearts are inclined towards evil now. So Pelagius is denying that. He will go even further in rejecting original sin. Pelagius has this belief that God creates each soul directly without using any mediator. Okay, so it's not as if um, your parents conceive you and then in that God uses the process of your conception to create your body and your soul. He uses the process of your conception to create your body, but your soul, that he makes directly, immediately. This was a big debate that was going on in the church, and, um, and whether, whether God did that immediately through normal pro- natural processes, or whether it was something that God did immediately. And the idea was, ultimately it was how they viewed the soul. The soul was this noble, immortal thing and um, just seemed like it, soul wasn't the kind of thing that could come out of the groping of two bodies in the night. It seems like you need a more causal power to make a soul than that, right? Um, dogs do the sexual act and they create other dog bodies, right? But um, the type of soul that dog has is, is just, you know, what allows them to move around. But it's not a rational, intellectual soul and it seems like you would need something more than just sex to bring that about. Um, so a lot of Christians were really attracted to this idea that the intellectual, the rational part of man, was created by God directly and then placed into the body at the time of conception. But, you know, that's how that would work. So Pelagius' idea here isn't that unusual. It's the conclusion he draws from it that's a little different. <clears throat> he says, look, how can these souls be corrupt at their birth then? If they were made directly by God, then where did the sin get in? Right? And how could anything impure be transferred from Adam to a soul when that soul doesn't owe its beginning to anything of Adam, it owes its beginning only to the Creator God? seems like the souls would come into the world pure and then get corrupted after that. Further, even if there were such a thing as original sin, and Pelagius says there isn't, and if that original sin is removed by baptism, then wouldn't it be the case That the children of baptized parents would not get original sin. Right? So you're born, you have original sin, because your parents were sinful and unbaptized. You see the light. You repent, you give your life to Jesus, you get baptized. Your original sin washed away, white as snow. You marry someone, she too, or he too, free of original sin, through baptism and belief in Christ. You guys get together, you start a family. Your first little baby is born. That baby, where's the sin going to come from? It's not going to come from your pardon in Adam's original sin because that's gone now. It's not going to come from God because that's silly. So this child should be free from original sin and able to go forward with a good 50-50 chance of choosing good and evil in life. Therefore, um, Adam's sin, according to Pelagius, introduced physical and spiritual death. And it also introduced a habit of disobedience against which all men must struggle. All right. So he, he, he acknowledges that it's harder to choose the good than the evil in the world. But he says it's not because there's something inside me, some cancer in my metaphysical being that predisposes me to choose poorly. It's because I see everybody around me choosing poorly. It's because I have a, a, a habit that's formed over time of choosing poorly. That habit gets transferred by, uh, not by physical descent, but rather by custom and example. So if the the folks around me, if somehow we could clean up humanity enough that the majority example out there weren't one of folks (laughs) failing to choose the good thing, but were folks choosing the good thing, then we could increase our chances of choosing the good. We could swing the the tide from being 70% chance of choosing evil to 70% chance of choosing good. Hey, wouldn't that be something? And that's what we're supposed to be working for. And so he sees in the scriptures, in all the commands, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He sees that as God saying, let's turn this thing around, right? You can, this is actually attainable. You can do this. Let's work to create a broader, good, moral example that can sort of turn the human race's head the proper way. Okay. It gets worse. He's just getting warmed up. Now, he also believes that it's really important that God not exert too much pressure on us to choose the good okay if if, if god is is too insistent about the good, then this is ultimately going to take away the freedom of our choice. Right? So if every time I have a choice between good and evil, God will supernaturally implant in my awareness this really vivid image of hellfire and the, and the horrible consequences of my sin, then it's going to be really hard for me to mess up, right. And so you might think, let's do that, you know? Let's have, let's have God do that, and then I won't make as many mistakes because, you know, the consequences are right there in my mind. I can see exactly what's going to happen. How many times do you know you're going to be doing something wrong? Do you not want to do it, but you just can't... It just seems so good at the time, and you don't see at the time all the consequences that have come out of it, Right? You convinced yourself, you have pushed them away, you have rationalized them away, or the devil's hiding them from you, or whatever, but you know it's wrong, and you know it's not what the scriptures would have you do, but, man, it's so attractive, and you're just going to do it anyway. Come on, we all do it, right? Paul talks about it. Paul struggled with it. We know better than him. Well, if in all of those moments, we knew exactly what would come from that. We knew exactly how bad it was, and felt it with the immediacy of its existence, as if it were actually upon us. We could feel the devil nipping at our heels. I think we'd walk a little straighter, don't you? Pelagius says, yeah, but then you wouldn't have any free will. Because now God's just controlling you. He's not really allowing you to choose. He's overriding your choice with uh, these overwhelming considerations. Okay. So he wants, he wants, he wants God to, to encourage us to do right, but not to be too involved in encouraging us to do right. So how is he going to strike that balance? Well, he's going to do it by restricting the range of grace. Okay, so he's going to say grace equals revelation. It equals God's law. In short, it equals all the various ways in which we come to know what the good is. Everything short of what goes into our actual choice of the good. Okay? But he's going to make one exception to this. The forgiveness of sins in baptism. That's also Grace. But that's stronger than just this knowledge-type grace that he's pushing, right? Something's actually changing there. So, let's talk about baptism. In adults, baptism takes away the sins they have committed. Because remember, he doesn't believe in original sins, so I can't take that away. Takes away the sins they've actually committed. In children, there's nothing to take away. They haven't committed any sins yet, right? Yeah, you're free. You're good. <laughs> so... Are okay, you pointing in me? No no no. No, no you see me afterwards. <laughs> so one thing is so so for, for this like, what's what's the child's name like? Gracie.
2: Oh. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> Providence. <any> Providence. <laughs> wow. So Gracie has no sins to have taken away. Gracie should be baptized, okay? But for Gracie it's just a blessing. Sometimes they'll say that Gracie has no sins, but Gracie needs the kingdom of heaven to be opened. And so baptism opens the kingdom of heaven for Gracie. But there's not any sin that needs to be taken away there, original or actual. Dan? Genius. So
0: then, at what age do... uh, what age does a child start sinning?
1: Right? What do you you think, Crans? About as soon as they can move around on their own? (laughs) The moment they can do anything but lie there and ask for food. <laughs> or a little sooner, the moment they realize that they can try and get what they want. I don't know.
0: <laughs>
1: Super early. Yeah.
0: Well,
1: the great news is, because he thinks you should baptize them anyway, even if it's just for a blessing, you don't have to know if they've started to sin or not right all you have to know is that but I'm pretty the answer he's going to give you is that it has to be tied to their will so they have to be self aware enough to be making choices so as, as obnoxious as that one year old may be you know that person isn't really choosing yet that's just it's all natural and instinctive and stuff and so you can't blame them for it you know he's, you know what I'm talking about Like that. I see that <laughs> you want to blame them but you just can't alright so because of all of this Pelagius believes that it is possible for a man to live a life without sin He argues that we are commanded so to live in the scriptures, and that there are many examples in scripture of people who have lived this way. So get out there and be perfect, guys. It's going to take you some time. It's not going to happen right away. And when you get there, you're not going to automatically stay there. You're going to have to struggle to stay there. This isn't a naive sinlessness here. He knows it's going to be hard, and he knows that you're going to fall away from it, too. But it is possible, and that's what our struggle is. That's what, our, that's what our, our call is, is to try to do that. So Pelagius says. Now, you wouldn't want to stop there, right? If you have some disciples, they're going to come along, and they're going to extend your ideas even further. So, um, Celestius is the main disciple of importance here. He was a, he was a close friend of Pelagius. They traveled together. Um, he's the person who is ultimately condemned by the church. Pelagius never is never condemned. Celestius is condemned. Um, he argues that children may be saved without baptism. And he says that grace and free will are incompatible because grace destroys free will. right? It replaces free will. It makes the choice for us. right? That's kind of a reduction to the absurd of Pelagius' argument. But the principles are definitely there. Okay. Also, Celestius didn't mind being contentious. Pelagius always tried to like, people are like, surely you don't mean. He's like, well, I mean, you know, I was kind of trying to say that and Shalensius is like, children don't need to be baptized. Don't baptize children. It's evil. Right. (laughs) Very dramatic. Too dramatic. Okay. I want to point out a, 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 a change to our syllabus here. Normally at this point, After expositing the heresy, I would then go and say, now this is what the Orthodox said. And if you look at the paper, it says, now here's what Augustine says. And if you know anything about church history at all, you should think that Augustine equals Orthodoxy. Hold hold off on that idea for just one second, will you? I'd like to create a little bit of space between Augustine's view and the Orthodox view, because it exists. But first, any questions about the heresy? Do you see this at work in the world around you? I bet. Well,
0: I was going to ask, so where would, where would this view take in the work of the Holy Spirit?
1: Well, the Holy Spirit's work would be all of that revelatory stuff, you know, telling you about God's law and um, giving you information about what God requires in general, you know. Um, all the ways in, by which you're able to know whether something is right or wrong, but it wouldn't go so far as actually assisting you in choosing the right. That's too strong. And be a sense of calling. Either. Well, it is a calling to holiness. And you could be called to a specific uh, ministry, but you wouldn't have that, Lord, I'm struggling, help me in this time of temptation. God could say, the only help God could offer is, remember, you shouldn't do this. But God couldn't actually strengthen your will so that you would be able to get through it, because then that's you have to be the one making that choice, and you feel that that's God taking over your will and controlling you from the inside, and that's not Okay. Yeah. As
0: far as the reaction the whole thing we talked about Jimmy last week about how they non-Christians had a lot of trouble with the notion of forgiveness is you know, freely given and you know you're going to you repent yet you'll sin thereafter and so you'll be forgiven again. I mean is there some kind of notion that that's just not the way that thing to go?
1: Yeah. I don't think that's the part of it because he still believes that you know your sins after baptism are, are forgiven by your baptism as well so it, baptism goes both ways in your life um he's really more concerned about the this this sense that like it's kind of depressing fatalism that like no matter what we do, our course is set for us you know there there were there were so many different avenues in the ancient world that led to a, a kind of determinism and and that's really what he had in mind I think um, It seems to me that his system would still be open to many of the same charges about well, how is forgiveness possible at all or how can your sins after baptism be forgiven. I don't think he really does he gives us any any more resources for dealing with that. So on the particular
0: the page, the second board is the um how souls are created without using a mediator. And I understand the concept. I'm
1: not sure that I understand what the orthodox view and so I was hoping maybe it'd be speaking. Uh this is a this is the doctrine, and so there's, there's none. you're not required to believe one way or another about this. And uh, I think you will find people throughout church history on both sides of this. Um, so there isn't a clear teaching of orthodoxy on this. Um, uh, no, the mediator would be your parents. It would be through their actions that the soul would be created. Um, <clears throat> I think the majority should... Be, comes down on that side that there's something carried in the male seed that is what becomes the soul but um, that everyone's backed away from that at least since the middle of the 20th century and the rise of feminism so
0: <laughs>
1: yes it is <laughs> by the way did you read Genesis 3 <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> but,
2: you got You would ask, just kind of does
0: seem familiar in modern days. I mean, I think it's very, very common. Not just within the church, but in many ways, it's pervasive outside of the church. Um, the concept that how do we explain evil in the world? Do we explain anything negative in the world by this kind of social learning environment. Mm-hmm. We're all good. Yeah. Everybody, everybody I talk to. Oh, well, he's just really a good person. Really. He's a felon. <laughs> okay. you know. So, but a nice okay. I don't know what that means. Yeah.
1: He fell in with a bad crowd. Right. So there's, always, there's
0: always an explanation of I'm not really the sum of my parts, but the bad in me is the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, and if in a vacuum I had existed, I would have obviously chosen the good. That's right. That's right. And so I think it is pervasive. I think it spills over not just basically throughout all of culture, but into the church with this idea of oh I can just make myself better
2: mm-hmm.
0: and kinda of maybe God needs to help me be better. But really it's my job. Mm-hmm. It's my job to fix all my problems. Right. And I shouldn't go to the church. And I shouldn't bother God. Right. Because that's
1: He's busy, you know. It
0: may not happen, you know? Yeah. There's something going on in China, you know, God's like over
1: there or something. Yeah. But yeah. That's God right. <laughs> there <laughs> could be something good in China, but God's gotta be there.
0: Have you heard of indigo kids? So no. just made me think about this. I was having a conversation with a her, an adult uh, recently who was, when I said I believe that I'm sinful and like, you know, said kids are sinful. I said, yes, and he just laughed really loud. We're like, oh, What, Your kids of Lord? He says, so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's like, I can't believe they're saying that. And then he starts talking about these indigo kids that and I've heard through a couple of other friends. They're kids who have a direct connection to God and they are just as pure can be, and um, I guess there are movies out there
1: about this, and it's very prevalent in education right now.
0: Can you um, sign up for these kids? I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you get one? It's <laughs> program.
1: <I, I>, yeah. <laughs> so it's just really interesting, because I keep
2: hearing about
0: it, because yeah. it's coming back, especially, like I said, in education, and um, I don't know, I think it's obviously just this desperate need to justify yeah. what's going
1: on, but I, yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if you if you, if you can catch That's your mind way back to the first session that I led, um, and uh, when I talked about Platonism, and I said that Plato, one of Plato's core beliefs is that, you know, if, if, if men just knew what the good was, we would choose it, right? When we don't choose the good, it's because of ignorance, right? There's a lot in common with this, with this thing, right? Grace is knowledge. It's God telling us what the good is so that we know to choose it, right? But the idea is that, now, Palladius doesn't think that we're inevitably going to choose it like Plato does. Plato thinks that if we know what's right, we've got a 100% chance of picking it, right? But <coughs> the clay just says, no, if we know it's right, then we've got a 50% chance of picking it. But that's, all that's the highest we can get it, really, you know? Unless we have everybody around us doing it and then peer pressure's leading us in the right direction, that's about the best we can do, right? So it's, it's not quite as naive, but there's definitely a, 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 a kinship there. Dave? I would become I sinful with around
0: him
1: to encourage them. He's a 50-50 chance. <laughs> he had two doors, life and death. He chose death, right? That's, that's what that's what free will means for Pelagius, is that you've got an equal chance to go either way, right? And so he doesn't want it to be, he doesn't want us to lose our free will. So he wants to keep it around 50-50. In these arguments,
0: uh, did they ever bring up much about the fact that Satan runs rampant in this world? I mean, we hear all about man here, but we don't hear about the temptations...
1: So that's part of that. that's part of that atmosphere of, you know, the habit and custom of choosing wrongly around us. Satan's involved in making that, making sure that gets going and stays going. So, um, <clears throat> but, but again, he's going to say that Satan can't really directly affect our will. Satan can just sort of manipulate human society as a whole so that I get to see lots of people choosing badly, and that leads me to want to choose badly too. So Satan and God's influence are both kind of shrunk to really be this sort of, on the one hand, general influence on society, and on the other hand, kind of knowledge, right? Satan can say, hey, wouldn't you like to do this? And you're like, wow, I never thought of that. That sounds like fun, you know? But he can't go so far as, hey, why don't you do this? I'm going to torment you in your dreams, and I'm going to make you keep thinking about it. That's <laughs> now Satan's taking away our free will, and he can't do it either. So, so it's sort of parallel there. Is acceptance in God's side contingent upon improved performance? It's like at baptism, maybe <coughs> first
0: one I didn't have a problem, but in the second one I had a problem, so now am I absolutely loved by God, accepted by God, or is it going to be contingent upon how well I do in my decision making, free will versus good? well There'll be a finish line, you Yeah. finish differently, and some may not make the
1: cut. It seems, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that for Pelagius it's a, it's a sum total of good versus evil in your life kind of thing, where it's like, okay, well you've got to have baptism, but if you've got that, then let's see how the scales come out. Um, <clears throat> but um, one way in, w- in which your choices matter is, is in determining whether your baptism is going to even matter or not because did you really have faith? Did you really choose to follow Jesus or were you just getting wet? Right? Um, and then in another sense, there's some level of judgment. And even for those who make it through, we'll all be saved, but as through the flames. And so that's affected by the choices that we've made. um, So let's let's turn to Augustine now, because this is interesting as well. (coughs) So, (coughs) excuse me, it must be stated at the outset that Augustine's reaction to the Pelagian teaching was one of the great overreactions in the history of the church. The extremity of his position was one that many of his contemporaries lamented, and much of what he argued was to be quietly abandoned by the church until it was taken up again by John Calvin. Briefly, his ideas are as follows. Okay, Augustine, we all chose to sin along with and in Adam's first sin. His sin is our sin, not merely because it is passed on to us, but because we committed it. You can understand that as literally as you want to, and you will not be misconstruing this text. Okay, in some way, we were in Adam in such a way as to be able to make a decision at that one crucial juncture, and every one of us chose freely with Adam to sin. That's one way in which original sin belongs to us. It also belongs to us through transmission. But even if you blocked all paths of transmission, it would still belong to us because in some mystical way we were there in Adam choosing to eat the apple. Okay? Or whatever food it was. <coughs> Next. <coughs> you have got to love this. Adam's sin is transmitted through sexual desire. Not the sexual act itself, but that pleasure which attaches to it. Yeah. So, Augustine doesn't seem to make up his mind about whether souls are immediately created by God or not. You can see him going both ways on this in various times. Um, But for him, it doesn't really matter. If they're created by procreation, then they get their share in original sin at the moment of procreation. If not, when they're joined to bodies, which happens at the creation of the body, so again, at the moment of sexual pleasure, they become sinful because they get joined to this happy body, where original sin is being passed along. So either way, he can pinpoint the time when original sin passes into you, whatever you believe. And this is Augustine saying, look, that's a doctrine. You can think whatever you want to about how the soul is created. What you need to realize is that whichever one you think, you're still going to end up in an original sin situation. Um, Now this is, by the way, the reason for the virgin birth, because only in this way could Jesus avoid inheriting Adam's sin. It isn't enough for Jesus not to have a male father. He had to be conceived in such a way that that the pleasurable sexual act wasn't involved in any way. Which also means that, well, we won't go there. So, that's that. Now, as a result of this sin, man loses the right exercise of the freedom of the will. We still have free will, but now we can only choose to use it for evil, unless God's grace intervenes. No worthwhile action can be done by us without grace having first moved us to that action and given us the power to accomplish it. Thus, says Augustine, no one in the Bible lives without sin except for Jesus. Unbaptized infants, Augustine says, go to hell with the devil, though they will not suffer as badly as adults who, in addition to original sin, also have actual committed sins held against them. Baptize your kids. Sorry, Gracie. Now, because the initiative in man's move to salvation belongs to grace, the sole dividing factor in who is saved is God's decision to give or withhold grace. Predestination. The number of those who will receive grace, set from all eternity, is equivalent to the number of angels who fell, so that we take their place in heaven. (laughs) What? It's nice. That's from Augustine. (laughs) Oh, it's clever, though, because then it's like this great divine wisdom. The angels fall away. They already have believed the time that happened before our creation because right at the very beginning of our creation, Satan's already fallen to be able to tempt us. So God says, hey, we lost some angels. I got an idea. Let's make some dudes. (coughs) We'll lose a bunch of those, too. We'll lose most of those. But we'll get enough back. I'll make I'll make as many as it takes to end up with enough to fill up what we lost in the angels. Because I want to have the fullness of heaven back, as I originally envisioned it. Um, so when scripture says that God wills all men to be saved, Augustine interprets this to mean that there will be elect from every people. right? So he says God wills that all types of men be saved. So there's, there's not going to be a single type of person out there of whom there isn't at least one representative saved. But it doesn't mean that God wants all men to be saved, because if God wanted all men to be saved, all men would be saved. So that, this is a, a, a poor way of reading that text, he'll say. God's choice does not depend on foreknowledge of the good things that people will do. So it's not that God says, okay, I can see that St. Francis is going to be a great man. He's going to really do great things, and that the balance of his life is going to come out on the good side. Therefore, I'm going to pick Francis as worthy for my kingdom because he's going to prove it to be the case. He's earned it. He hasn't yet, but he will have earned it. So I pick Francis. But Hitler, didn't. he wasn't even trying. Like, I'm not picking him. Are you kidding? So it's like a bad game of, like, dodgeball. You know I mean? God's the captain of one team. Um, no, not the way it works, Augustine says. Rather, whatever good St. Francis does... It's only possible because God chose him from before there were any actions to do anyway, right? So Hitler was incapable of becoming a saint, not because Hitler chose not to become a saint, but because Hitler wasn't chosen to be a saint. Now Hitler didn't have to go on and become a demon, right? That was that was on him. But he couldn't have been a he couldn't have been a Francis. He just wasn't chosen to be. Well, so how does God go about choosing John to salvation and Judas to damnation? Who are you to question God? Or to put it in other words, none of your damn business. Any questions? No. Good. (laughs) Isn't that what Paul says? He asks the same question in Romans, and he says, "Who are you, worm, to question God?" Deeply unsatisfying, biblical. Okay. So that's that's where Augustine comes down. Now let's, let's look at the Orthodox stuff, and then you can go crazy. So, as alluded to before, Augustine's doctrines caused uncertainty and dismay in many of the other bishops of his day, including such notable names as Prosper of Aquitaine and John Cassian. Really, really big names, if you know early you know, 5th century bishops. Um, there was also a Hillary involved in this, but it wasn't the famous Hillary, so <laughs> it wasn't Hilary of Poitiers. It was some Hillary. We don't know who he was. He was a lay person. Such men's opposition, um, as much to Pelagius as to Augustine's construal of grace and predestination, led them to be branded semi-Pelagians by the supporters of Augustine. This is basically name-calling. They weren't Pelagians in any respect. They just weren't Augustinians either. And so um, sim- calling them semi-Pelagians makes it sound like they're, they're bad. Um, but that's, that's not really a good description of their position. Concerning the will and predestination, as I mentioned before, the church had no formal need to pronounce, for they were matters of doctrine, not dogma. For the creed had confessed... Sorry, what was not a matter of doctrine, however, was the status of baptism. For the creed had confessed that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Yet the Pelagians were possibly teaching two baptisms, one for children, whose result was blessing, and one for adults, whose result was forgiveness. And even if they weren't teaching that, at the very least, they were teaching that there were some baptisms, namely the Gracies, that were not for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Which is clearly contrary to the creed. And everything that's in the creed is a dogma. <laughs> so this becomes the key question upon which the church must pronounce. And it would do so at Ephesus in 431 A.D. The Third Ecumenical Council we talked about a little bit before. Now, this is a weird pronouncement. okay? I I looked at this thing this week and I thought to myself, oh, somebody abbreviated the text. I better go find the full text. Uh Uh-uh. Whoa. The pronouncement is actually quite vague, saying only that those who agree with Celestius, that's Pelagius' disciple, are anathematized. It means that that that's the church saying, if you believe this, it's going to turn out to be the case that you will be eternally condemned. It's going to turn out that you're not a Christian. And these people are to be deprived of their bishoprics the council neither spells out in particular what it is that Celestius says that is condemned, nor what is to be held in its place. By contrast, the views of Nestorius condemned at the same council were thoroughly explicated. Pages and pages on what Nestorius believed that you must not believe, and then pages about what you should believe instead of what Nestorius believed. And then it says, And anyone who agrees with Celestius should lose their bishopric and is eternally condemned. Really? This is the first time in in the history of councils that they weren't specific. The name of Pelagius does not appear in the text at all. Thus, while orthodoxy condemns Pelagianism in the person of Celestius, it does not approve of Augustine's particular way of defending the faith from Pelagian claims. It doesn't comment on Augustine's way. It doesn't disapprove of it, but it doesn't approve of it either. This was to be of decisive importance for it means that the Council refuses to elevate Augustine's peculiar doctrine of grace and predestination to the level of dogma. They had to wait for Calvin to elevate it to dogma. Luther was going in that direction as well. Subsequent theologians, following John Cassian as well as Augustine himself in works that predate the Pelagian controversy, and even in Augustine's more sober pronouncements during the controversy itself, adopt a more balanced view of the relationship between free will and grace, is represented by either Pelagius or the historical Augustine. That's it. That's the conclusion. That's the answer. What are your questions? Joe looks like he's working on something. <laughs> Not yet? Okay. I think in my
0: reading that um, these different councils wherever they have they asked Pelagius Come forth, and he never showed. <laughs> Finally, he showed, and that's when he recanted. Is that correct? Or he changed his tune or something? So that Pelagius
1: was Pelagius was always willing to um, restate what he meant in such a way that it would be more pleasing to you. He, but from the very beginning, he was happy to say to, to sort of back down in the face of opposition. Um, if if it had only been Pelagius, then. Uh, no problem, right? It's really Celestius was the, was the bulldog. He was the one who was driving this, who refused to back down. And that's why he's the one who gets condemned at the council. And really, to be quite fair, historically, the, the heresy ought to bear his name. The ideas originated with Pelagius, but even in the form that we, can, that we think of, when we think of Pelagianism, that's really Celestius' version of it and not Pelagius' version of it. So so um, there's nothing in the official conciliar records about about that anecdote, but it wouldn't surprise me if I just were like, no, I'm, I'm cool. Whatever. What he said. Yeah.
0: Did anyone this writing the How much of predestination has been discussed before
1: this talk? that always... There's been some talk. I mean, you know, the word of predestination appears in the Bible, and so everyone had to come to terms with what it meant. Um, uh, and so a lot of the a lot of the things that you think about um, in terms of response to Calvin's take on predestination where, where non-Calvinist theologians are trying to explain those biblical texts, that's basically how people dealt with it until, you know, before Augustine and then again after Augustine until, until Calvin. Um, which is to say that, you know, to sort of take the predestination not to mean, not in a deterministic way, but um, in, to, to be about God's calling. That when could say he predestines people, that he calls people, right? Um, so, but predestination as such hadn't been a big topic of discussion. What was a bigger topic, uh, what had been a, a topic was, was the will and how, what, how much our will played into salvation. And you found people saying some, people were, were, were going, on the one hand, they felt like they really, really needed to emphasize the freedom of the will because of all the classical determinism and the different ways to that. So from the earliest ages of the church, you see a lot of emphasis on choosing. That it's not just what happens to you, it's what you choose. You have to choose to follow Christ. You have to choose to live a holy life. Um, In the 20 or so years before this controversy breaks out, you start to see a swing the other way. You start to see the church deciding to emphasize grace more. Um, That's partly because the stranglehold of the deterministic philosophies was breaking up. As the Roman Empire was falling apart, so the intellectual systems that had been her mainstay were falling apart too. I mean, there was there was some of this trying to reach back and reestablish that Mark was talking about last week, but also people were just kind of people were just kind of opening their minds to new possibilities because when once once Rome gets sacked, you have to rethink the, your basic assumptions, much like we did when you know, when 9/11 happened, right? So so people then began to loosen up a little from this determinism, and so then the church began to say, well. Don't forget about grace. Don't forget that it's always been our teaching that none of this happens apart from the grace of God.
0: Right. Um, <coughs> I think of um, particularly Luther's defense of his view of by faith alone and mm-hmm. also some of Calvin's writings. I mean, they both each the heavily on the dust yeah, to defend right? their, their positions. I guess part of my question is what part of their did they hold to with, with Augustine? I mean, what is it? Because if you look at if you look in there, I'm
1: even shocked.
0: I'm like, oh, do you
1: believe that? <laughs> you, know, um,
0: yeah. you know, what what parts of them, were, were there parts of Augustine that they didn't agree with?
1: Did yeah. You? Well, I mean, are there, there are parts of Augustine that don't agree with what I put on the sheet. Right Before Pelagius happened, Augustine was much more tame. Augustine was what would, held what would later come to be called semi-Pelagianism, as did everyone before Pelagius. Um, and then in response to Pelagius, Augustine went all the way to the other extreme. And a lot of it was rhetorical. That was his rhetorical training. He believed that, you know, kind of like politics, right? If you're in a debate with somebody, you villainize them. You make them as bad as possible. Draw mustaches on their campaign signs, you know, and that kind of thing. So so there's kind of like, there's the Augustine in conflict, but then there's the more sober Augustine, which comes out even in some of the writings during the conflict period, right? So, um... So I would say that Luther was probably 50% in agreement with the conflict Augustine. And that's where Luther learned how to do his conflict as well. He learned it from watching Augustine. He says, oh, when Augustine was faced with controversy, he got really strident, he cursed at people, uh, he was very mean. And so that's what I should do. And guess what?
2: <laughs>
1: okay. Um, Calvin, who did not inherit that from Augustine, thank you, um, is, is 100%, ag- 100% extreme Augustine. Like, there's no doctrine of the extreme Augustine that Calvin is going to flinch away from. And that's where, you know, the, the five points of Calvinism are really all rooted in Augustine's anti-Pelagian writings, right? So that's the you know, irresistible grace, double predestination, all of that. He's taking that straight from Augustine, and Augustine is his authority that he's arguing against the Lutherans on the one side who also take Augustine as an authority, and against the Catholics who take Augustine. He says, you guys both think Augustine is the man, and neither of you are listening. Look at this more carefully, right? So, so there's, you know, it, it, it's there. It's, it's really, it really, really is there in Augustine. The question is, how Catholic is Catholic theology when one person becomes the determining factor of it? And that's something that, um, on this issue, the Church decided to move away from Augustine and back to where it was before. But on most other issues, the Church was so very Augustinian. It's a real problem to this day in Catholicism. Um, and it's a problem in Protestantism, too, because he's our only Church father, right? We have, we have the New Testament, We've got Augustine, we've got Luther, and then we've got everyone from Luther forward, right? Um, we don't have anybody between the New Testament and Augustine, and we don't have anybody between Augustine and Luther. Like, those, those are our authorities. Um, so that means that the sole interpreter, the sole instrument of the spirit for the interpretation of the scriptures before the Protestant Reformation becomes Augustine. And that's a very particular interpretation, right? And that's not the universal, that's not holding together all of these various opinions about doctrines. Augustine's got very strong and very particular opinions about doctrines, and some of them come from very surprising places. Augustine was in, involved in at least two heresies before he finally settled on an orthodoxy, and it's, it's, in, it's interesting that the number one thing that both Pelagianists and semi-Pelagianists accused Augustine's view of predestination and grace of was Manichaeanism, which was a heresy that Augustine actually held until shortly before this controversy broke out. Now... I want to say to you that I have I've only just really taken serious note of that this past week. I'm gonna spend some time looking at Augustine's doctrines and figuring out what about them smelled like Manichaeanism to everyone else. But it would not surprise me if some of his Manichaean assumptions were making their way into what he was doing here. Right. We gotta find that out. I mean that's important. We need to know that because um he was he was fresh off of some heresies when this stuff happened. Right? We, we want to... God used this man in a mighty way. And God taught the church through this man and led the church in the truth through this man. But he was one of God's many human instruments. And we've got to be careful not to elevate him too high above the others. Otherwise, that's something like some of these <coughs> sermons we've could lately about. I follow Paul. I follow I follow Augustine. Well, you know, slow down. How <laughs> right. are
0: these issues going in the into the near future at this time? I mean, we're still here today, but... Uh, there, must more councils
1: and and there was some there was some discussion that followed Ephesus uh, where um, and it was in, in that discussion that folks like John Cassian were labeled semi-Pelagianists um, and uh, and basically because they were called semi-Pelagianists they were closely associated with Pelagianism in folks' minds and so it was decided that semi-Pelagianism was bad um, never at a never at an ecumenical council there were several local councils that said semi-Pelagianism is bad but there was no ecumenical discussion of it after Ephesus. And um, once that quieted down, the church very quietly just went back to that type of theology. So if you, if you survey theologians between Augustine and Luther, the overwhelming majority opinion, and 90-95% majority opinion, is what would have been called semi-Pelagianism. Um, that also seems to be the opinion of the church before Augustine and Pelagius as well. So... So there was this, this desire to go back to a middle way between these two, which was felt to be always where the church had been. Um, and there were a lot of people who were writing Augustine letters saying, we appreciate what you're doing about Pelagius, but couldn't you have expressed this more mildly? I mean, do you, need to, do you need to destroy free will so much in order to make room for grace? Aren't you accepting a false dichotomy between free will and grace that was set up by the Pelagianists to begin with?
0: Right. As, as I said before, I have a this friend once in a while,
1: the door
0: will open, and will give you a kind of a heated discussion about
1: that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just well, and I, I think that's the that, that's what what I wanted to convey here was that, you know, we have we we come from a tradition which has a very particular take on this, right? I mean, we're reformed, which means we're Calvinists, which means predestination, irresistible grace, bondage of the will, all that kind of stuff, right? Okay, that's fine, but I want to point out that. These issues for most of the church history were not considered to be dogmatic. Right? They they only really became dogmatic issues at the Reformation. It was really Luther who and Calvin who made them dogmatic issues to say that it's about grace. And if you don't understand grace right, you're not a Christian. I'm not certain that I have to understand how God's grace works in order to be able to avail myself of God's grace. Right? I don't know I don't know where the line is there either. And I'm not in the business of trying to draw lines for people. I'm not in the business of trying to decide who's in and who's out. Um, That's not what theologians do. I don't think that's what churchmen do. (laughs) Um, But it's not clear to me that even under the Reformation construal, grace versus works, faith versus works, it's not clear to me even in that construal that you have to say that if you believe wrongly about that, that you don't believe in Jesus, that you don't believe in the salvation who what you for you. Um, So there's at least an argument to be made that these are still doctrinal issues, but certainly the question of, this is even a more specific question in some cases of how does that grace work? Even if it's, it's not possible apart from God's grace, God's grace is the main operative factor, not our works. There's still a further question, are our works, do they come from our will or do they come from grace? Folks, that's doctrine. And I'm not telling you not to believe what you believe. I'm telling you don't start wars over it. I'm telling you don't break fellowship with other believers over it, right? Um, because the same spirit is at work on both sides of this. Aside, um, a on birth, mm-hmm. and why yeah oh yeah <laughs> that's pretty much the reason now right it the reason for the virgin birth is so Christ could avoid sin and therefore sin is linked the only reason the virgin birth would be the answer to needing to avoid sin is that sin is somehow tied up in sexuality Um... The Church, Catholic and Protestant, is still based, largely accepts Augustine's view of sin of, of sex that it's, that there's something sinful about the sexual act itself. It's it's very difficult for folks to free themselves from this presupposition. Um, now, Preston has done some stuff on that here, and we've got some books over there to talk about ways to understand that differently. But people are still struggling with how to see sex as something that's good and beautiful and in its own right. right? Um, some, of the, some examples of this, Milton, a great Protestant writer uh, of the 17th century, he said that he, he believed that before the fall, um, man's sexual desire was completely in his power. So he would ha- only have erections when he wanted to. He would just be like, now, you know, do what he wanted to do and then be done with it. And, he would, and it would be this very, this very sober, very dignified action. You know, it wouldn't involve a lot of excitement and passion. It would just be, you know, business-like. Let's just get this done and we can move on. Um, but then sin comes along and all of a sudden it's out of control and it's fiery and it's happening when he doesn't want it to and it's, it's crazy, right? That's, that's a horrible view of sexuality. <laughs> that, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> but, um, but that's the majority view. That's one of those things that um, not a lot of talk about it before Augustine and then after Augustine it just seemed obvious. Okay, yeah, one more. Was Mary sinful? Was Mary sinful? Um, at, at this point in time, it's an open question. Um, that's, a, that's a later issue. At, because right now it's just, well, Jesus had to, be, had to avoid um, the, the sexual way of conception, so he did that. Um, normally, Mary's, sin, Mary's original sin would have been taken away by baptism. Baptism wasn't around yet, so by divine grace maybe that was taken away. Um, we don't really know. But then, after Augustine, the more they focus on, right, but once he says, hey, that's why the virgin birth happens, you think about it the more, and then that question comes up, and someone says, well, Mary didn't have baptism, so she couldn't have lost her original sin, which means she didn't have original sin, but the only way she didn't have original sin was if there were a previous divine miracle, and that's the Immaculate Conception, right, that Mary was conceived without sin, miraculously, in the sexual way, but without sin, well, that opens every all the whole can of worms. Because <clears throat> if it could happen for Mary, then why couldn't it have happened for Jesus? He didn't need to have a human father, right? Well, okay, he needed a divine father because he needed to be half part man and part God. Very good. But if it could have happened for Mary, why couldn't it have happened further back, right? Immaculate conception was always a possibility, it seems, by divine miracle. So it seems like we could have snuffed out original sin with the be- with the birth of, uh, of Seth and then been done with it. So that's another debate but that hasn't come up for a couple hundred years yet so we've got some time on that
2: one
1: right now just enjoy the innocence
2: uh, of the of okay
1: um, by the way for anyone who's interested my birthday is the feast of the Immaculate Conception on the Catholic calendar so uh, just throwing that out there
2: <laughs>
1: okay we're out of time um, <laughs> let's, let's pray Father in heaven, we thank you for, we thank you that your spirit has not abandoned the church, that you, as promised, sent your spirit to lead us into all truth. Father, we pray for that same spirit as we contemplate these things to lead us into truth. And, and more importantly, Father, we pray for a spirit of wisdom. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to know the difference between doctrines and dogmas, to know when we must be willing to lay our lives in the line and die, because it is the very faith of the apostles and prophets, and when we can graciously turn to our brother and say, I don't like it. But let's sit down and have have a meal together. Father, give us the wisdom to discern. Give us open and magnanimous hearts. May we have more zeal for fellowship than for contention. More zeal for union than for being right. And Father, may you also lead us into that right knowledge that will allow us to live the lives that you've called out for us, that will allow us to be the shining examples, to be salt and light in this world, to be a church that is worthy of the groom that we're called to. Father, we pray that you would uh, that you would soften and open our minds and hearts for worship, and we look forward to the opportunity to praise your name. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.